I am Citizen 44. This show is sponsored by Small Portions Cafe, the book by Douglas Fergus. Doug is a very close friend of mine, and he sent it all the way from the States so I could have my own personal signed copy. And I got to tell you, it's one of the most uniquely entertaining, silly, funny, interesting compilation of short stories I've ever read. Check out Small Portions Cafe. It's available both as a Kindle and a softcover book. Small Portions Cafe on Amazon. You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aronsberg, live from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Hey everybody, Mark Aronsberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 96. My guest today is Gareth Craze. Gareth is a behavioral scientist and coaching psychologist. He's also a board-certified executive coach, health and wellness coach, and a personal lifestyle coach. He's also a very cool guy from New Zealand, and uh, I think you'll find his road to his PhD quite fascinating and quite unusual. Also on the show is my daughter, Zoe. It's been a few shows since she's been on, and uh, she was all fired up to give some opinions on this and that. And I think you'll enjoy her rant, as it were. I certainly did. And truth be told, everything she says is pretty appropriate. And I'm so sad for that generation, what we've left them, and how much time is probably left for all of us. Pretty sad state of affairs going on right now. Speaking of sad, but no longer sad, we've got Rich Reese on the show. Rich used to be the producer of this show back when we both lived in Ashland, ye old Ashland, when Ashland, Oregon was a spectacularly amazing place to live. He's moved on, I've moved on, he's over in Tennessee doing his thing, but uh, he was feeling a little down and out for a bunch of weeks, and he's come back, he's back. He's done a little work, some personal work on himself, and come out on the other side. I'm excited to have him on the show. And uh, we'll talk to him first. I'm losing track of time now because this is an endless catastrophe here in Vietnam. As I may have mentioned before, this first wave of pandemic was pretty mild here while the rest of the world was in chaos. And now things are stirring up again in the States and around the globe. So there was a little bit of a respite, but now we are knee deep in the hoopla of illness. And I'm going on my... I don't know, third or fourth month working from home. Between April and now, we've had approximately 210,000 new cases of COVID right here in Saigon. And I think it's now about a half a million overall in the various provinces across Vietnam. We need to get a giant bucket of ivermectin and just dump it on the world so we can just be rid of this thing. We don't need the vaccinations. We have the medication. It's like 11 cents a dose. I don't understand what we're doing. We could just knock this thing out, but yeah, that's why we're not gonna be here very long because we're just stupid, stubborn sapiens. Here's Rich. How you doing, Rich? Good, I'm good, thank you. Look at this. Oh my God, where'd you get that? I got this Latte Larry's t-shirt right here in Saigon, Vietnam. Of course you did. So it's a total bootleg. (laughs) 
I got a Seinfeld shirt, a Latte Larry's. I got two different Vandalay industry t-shirts. I even got a Curb Your Enthusiasm shirt. And what's even more shocking is this is the most comfortable cotton shirt I've ever put on my body. Cool. How much were they? 11 cents. No, this one might have been like eight bucks. Wow. Cheap. Yeah. Anyway, I thought you'd like this. And I have all these new shirts. I got rid of all my old crappy shirts. Cool. What'd you do today? It's still pretty early. Oh, what time is it there in Tennessee? 9.30. Oh, so we're exactly 12 hours different. Bingo! It's even easier than the whole Portland thing. What I have to tell people in L.A. and in uh, Oregon is subtract two hours from what I am. So it's 9.34 p.m. here, which means it's 7.34 a.m. in the California-Oregon time zone, which would be the Pacific Standard Time. Now it's just exactly the same time, except... Opposite. A.M. P.M. Yeah. A.M. P.M. But it wasn't A.M. P.M. Do you remember what episode that is of Seinfeld? Of course. That was the marathon runner guy. I remember it. Yeah, it was a very funny episode. So, uh, yeah. What's going on? You know, you're on show number 96. I'm almost there. Wow, it's amazing. It's not that amazing. I sent this guy an email because I desperately want him to be my 100th guest. Mm-hmm. His name is Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. He wrote this best-selling book called Sapiens. I will beg every human being on the planet to read this book about themselves, about us, the historical us from the beginning until now. This guy is fucking brilliant amazing so much myth busting going on here between theology and biology we're so caught up in this imagined order of how we think things really are which is not true and uh and this guy just spells it out in a very light-hearted way he had a rambo reference in there a harry potter reference in there he really tries to speak to every human or sapien for that matter Mm -hmm. anyway i told you i would send it to you you need to send me your address I'll just order one. I want to gift it to you. Wow. Well, I'll take it. The book should just be Humans Are Stupid, The End. That would actually be an appropriate title, but it goes much deeper than that with a lot of embedded belief systems that have no relativity to the reality of life. Yeah. And that's why people are confused and fucked up. We've got thousands of years of lies. Uh, I know. And it's a lot to overcome, and we're not going to. We could do it individually, but as a group, we will not survive our stupidity. It's just not going to happen. Fucking humans. You can't live out of harmony with nature and expect to be at peace and survive. You just can't. I was going to show you the book I'm reading. What are you reading? Un momento. Okie dokie, pokey. You ready? Yes. I'm making bread now. Oh, what is that? Tartine bread? Yeah, that's the guy in San Francisco who's supposed to be the best bread maker in the world. Chad Robertson, he owns Tartine in San Francisco. You've probably been there. No, I have not been to Tartine. Where's Tartine? Ask Eric Benetti. Every fat guy in the city knows about Tartine. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I've got some sourdough starters I've been working on, and uh, bread making is going to be my new thing right now. I'm going to become really good at it. You're going to become a bread guy. Do you have a bread maker or do you do everything by hand? Here it is. Okay, you're kneading that dough. Got to get your starters, you know, going and starting to get real sour and I love it. Have you already made some? Yeah. Has anybody else tasted it? No, not yet. I'm going to start making them next week. How long does it take to make bread? 
Once the starter's nice and ready, then you can make your bread in a day. What's the starter? What's that look like? It's uh, flour and water that you ferment over time. You feed it every day. You gotta feed it more flour and it ferments and ferments and after about a week or so, it's ready to start making bread. There's starters that are hundreds of years old. Interesting. It is. Yeah, it sounds like it. Are you becoming just a total bread enthusiast? Yeah, it's very scientific and I wanna learn all about it. Breads are alive. These starters are living things that you feed and take care of. Is it like kombucha? Is it that kind of like little dead baby thing that you you take care of and that you uh, nurture and add other stuff to it? Yeah, that little fucking scoby, that little dead baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What turned you on to this new project? I just want to eat the healthiest, most digestible, purest form of bread. Bread's been fucked with so much over the years. It's dirty, most of the bread we eat. The wheat's not whole grain, and I want it to be really healthy. Where are you getting your ingredients? I'm buying really good, nice, organic heirloom flours, really nice, expensive flours, and I'm making it out of that. Okay. I don't know if you know this, but people have problems with bread here in America. You know when you feel kind of bloated and shitty when you eat too much bread? Over in Europe, especially France, they don't do that. They don't strip all the nutrients. So you go over there and you eat tons of bread, you feel great. It doesn't affect you. You don't gain weight because the quality of the bread and the way that they process it. America, we ruin everything. We ruin everything. That should be the new MAGA hat. We ruin everything. And everybody else's everything as well. We're quite the uh, colonialists, aren't we? What's going on over there? You're making bread. I'm doing my work. I'm doing my Reiki. I'm doing my energy work. I'm meditating again every morning. And I feel something shifted probably about a week ago, man. And the clouds kind of parted. Welcome back. We missed you. Thank you. Yeah, I was kind of gone there for a while. But you know what? Sometimes we need that contrast so we can see what the rainbow fucking looks like. So to go a little dark and deep, it's not the most terrible exercise because then you know where you want to be versus where you were. No, it's a good thing. And I'm just looking for things to do. You read my little script. That's cool. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was very humorous. I hope you continue. You said you wrote two of them, right? Yeah, I'll send you the second episode. And it's all based on history because King Francis and Henry VIII were actually cousins. They were competitors. So so I put that in there. And that was a real rival that they had. Well, it's very funny. You're obviously a, a talented writer. Thank you. I hope that you continue. I would like the second one, of course. But the first one's a fucking home run. It has some legs. Thank you. I don't laugh out loud generally when I read things, but I laugh. That's a good sign. It's campy and it's silly and it's British humor. I put in the modern stuff, you know? What is the name of the uh, the project? Henry. Henry. Perfect. It's great. Thanks for Henry. I, re- I really appreciate it. And I- I'm looking forward to the second installment. All right. I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to keep writing. Thank you. I'm really happy to see you happy and that you have some things to uh, keep you entertained and occupied. Thank you. How's your mom? Uh, how's my what? Your mother, Mary. Be here on Monday. Oh, great. Is she coming with Barry? Mary and Barry? Yeah, my birthday is next Friday. Are you going to be 51? No. How old are you going to be? 52. You're going to be 52. Didn't we have your 50th birthday party? Didn't your mom up in the house? Wasn't that your 50th and they made all the food? Yeah, that was uh, 2019. That was your 50th. Okay. 52. That's a good number, isn't it? Uh, I turned 50 in the old world. (laughs) Right. What are you going to do for your birthday? I think we're going to go out to this really nice Thai restaurant. Zach and Dill will come and go downtown. There's some breweries and some stuff happening. Cool, man. 
First Friday is on Friday and it's really happening. There's a little square downtown. It's like an old square from the 1800s. It just goes off, man. Is it anything like our first Friday we used to have, the Ragers in Ashland? Yeah, it's very much like the old first Fridays in Ashland, like 10 years ago. I posted pictures of Ashland on LinkedIn a couple days ago because most of my connections are in Vietnam. So this is where I came from. This exquisite, amazing, beautiful place where families of deer walk through the streets like their human counterparts and even use the crosswalks what a magnificent place that was sure was man but you're in a cool place now right yeah i am and i got a community of friends what's the vibe there totally chill totally laid back people are nice and friendly and down to earth and it's cool and zach and dylan are like 20 minutes away from you yeah that's very convenient yeah it's really good man And they're recording music now in their house, upstairs, downstairs. They got the whole setup and they're separated out and and they got a whole new thing going on. Yeah, they sound great. They got a whole new kind of style sound they've been working on. It's really good. It's really good, man. When do they plan on uh, releasing whatever they're doing? Probably next year. Are they going to tour and promote it? Well, we'll see. I don't know what's going to happen because a lot of the venues now are trying to enforce vaccine mandates and they're not getting vaccinated so i don't know we're going to figure something out all right so you're sharing a show with this guy from new zealand his name is gareth craze he's got a phd in human sociology and he was a music promoter in new zealand he was like the first guy to start bringing real bands into new zealand because there was no trade there because they're at the bottom of the world and nobody wanted to come there Right. And it was very hard to get people to come perform. And somehow he created this niche market and he was successful for about 10 years till 2008 when the whole thing dropped out globally. Yeah. And now he's a therapist. What's been going on with your business? Is there anything happening for you guys? Yeah, there's shows booked. Some of our bands are old and they're scared. We have this band called The Love and Spoonful. Remember them? Sure, of course. They're terrified to work. Who do you have that's working? Believe it or not, man, we got a, we got one of the coolest jam bands. Uh, we have John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, who are kind of like Bruce Springsteen. John does great. So he's out there touring, and uh, Young Dubliners, of course, are working. They're at the Alaska State Fair tonight, so they're, they're working a lot. Yeah, we're doing fine. Uh, we got the Georgia Satellites. Remember them? There's not a name that you can mention from back in the day that I will not know. Rick Derringer, we got him. And uh, yeah, we got some acts that are working. It's all on autopilot, man. As long as I make enough to pay my electric bill, I don't give a You know, I don't care. Right. Zach and Dylan, I just booked them opening two shows for, I don't know if you remember this guy, Michael Martin Murphy. He had a song called, uh, She Ran Calling Wildfire. Love that song. Well, they're going to open two shows for him in Arizona because he's huge in the uh, cowboy rodeo market. Oh. So it's like while they're in Arizona, let's keep them out there. So I just made a few phone calls and I got him a show in Indio and I got him a show in LA and just to keep him out there for a couple weeks. I'm very lucky. It's it's easy. Do they have a name of their new act? The Zemet Brothers. Oh, that's a perfect name for them because that's who they are. Easy. I'm glad that you are finding this new passion in uh, preparing a new kind of food that's good for you and it's good for everybody because when rich is happy everybody benefits from that it really is important when you're not happy the whole world's not happy that's a lot of responsibility jesus that's what my mother says really she says boy when you're unhappy well you cause a lot of havoc she said people really (laughs) really feel it (laughs) 
I think there's some collective consciousness involved with if one limb on your body is not well, the rest of your body is going to be afflicted. And the earth, you're connected to it seamlessly. And if you're not well, it spills out. Yeah. I think we have that kind of effect on each other that we're all one thing, one organism, essentially. We're five fingers on one hand. You can't separate us. Yeah. And if one finger's broken, the rest of the hand's going to suffer a little bit from that. It'll figure out how to overcome that and adapt, but it still will have an effect. So you definitely have an effect on the world when you are not 100% feeling good. Right. You are 180 degrees different than the last time we spoke, and that makes my heart feel good. Yeah, I'm working at it. I'm working at it. I feel better just seeing you feel so good. It's so great. Thank you. The truth is there's a lot of trauma in my body that I've been storing for years. And this woman, Desiree, that I've been working with is releasing it. My God, it's been very difficult work. But for nine weeks, I've been going every week and it's intense. But stuff is coming out that's never come out and it's, uh, oh, it's draining, but there's a shift that's happening. Cool. Have you had any good whiskey lately? You know, I have been alcohol free, 100%. Good for you. You know, I was drinking beer with Harry downstairs and beer was not agreeing with me at all. My system was rejecting it. And you could buy Jameson here. Not like the craft whiskeys we were drinking back in Ashland. Oh, no, 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 sir. All right. Listen, it's been great to see you. And would you please tell the Zamed brothers I say hello? All right. Please give my best to your mom and have a great birthday. Thank you. Good chat. Good chat. Hey, Gareth. Hey, Mark. How you doing, man? I am extremely well, thank you. And yourself? I'm doing very, very well. So glad to be here. I am very excited to have you on the C44 podcast. It's so interesting and serendipitous how we met, which was completely unexpected. I was on my way with my friend, Mr. Hui, to an event in District 2. And you also were on your way to the same event, and we ended up at the wrong venue at the same time. We saw each other, and we were both asking for directions, and I believe I asked you to jump in the car with us, and we could all roll to this event together. Yeah, it was as simple as I needed a ride, and you offered a ride. It was down to your gracious gesture or me having to jump on the back of a grab to get to this location that I still didn't quite know where I was going to. And as it turned out, neither did we. We ended up getting there in a very roundabout, sort of convoluted way. Well, it all worked out perfectly. It was a fun event and it was really good to get there together with you and then for us to be here together again right now. Yeah, like you say, serendipity. You've been here how long in Saigon? I've been in Saigon since February 2019, so two and a half years and change at this point. What was your impetus? What was your motivation to leave? You're from New Zealand, correct? Yeah, I'm from New Zealand originally. I grew up in Auckland, New Zealand. Before I moved over here, I was completing grad school in Cleveland, Ohio. And I basically had a year and a half to go on my PhD and was at a point where I could do it all remotely. And uh, apart from the expectation that I would come back to Cleveland to finally defend my dissertation and 
do the last rites and graduate and all the rest of that. So I followed my girlfriend over here. She's got a very, very good job here, uh, directorial job. And uh, I followed her over here. Basically had had enough of living in the Midwest and wanted to go to warmer climates and was a little over those Cleveland winters after a while. I'd lived in Montreal previously as well. So I think I, I was just over cold climates in general. So I followed my girlfriend over here and we've got an apartment here now and I ended up completing my PhD over here. I had to defend it remotely as quite a number of graduate students have had to over this weird last year that we've had where everything has gone online including some of the great rites of passage of academia like dissertation defenses and so forth. So yes, that's where I kind of found myself and, and then so I graduated in absentia. I obviously didn't go to my own graduation ceremony back in Cleveland and have been here since. So um, apart from a couple of trips abroad since I've moved to Vietnam, I've been largely stranded here as many of us have been. What was the draw to Cleveland? And you're a behavioral scientist, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So my PhD is in organizational behavior. So I'm an organizational psychologist and uh, behaviorist. It wasn't so much that I chose Cleveland. I wanted to go to grad school somewhere in North America as a matter of priority. I applied to several schools and got accepted into quite a few, which was very gratifying. And at the time, Case Western Reserve, where I ended up going to, had the right combination of faculty that I wanted to work with, research initiatives that interested me, and a kind of scholarly ethos that I was impressed by. I actually got accepted at like, for example, UCLA. And so, you know, weighing up living in LA versus Cleveland or something like that. But UCLA, the opportunity to go there didn't strike me as quite as complete a package as what I wanted for someone who was just going to uproot himself from New Zealand and move all the way to North America to go to grad school. It had to be something that sort of gripped me on an intellectual level. And while the program at UCLA was good and a few of the other schools that I got accepted to all had good programs, Case Western just really ticked all the right boxes. And so it was more that the school that I liked happened to be in Cleveland than I chose Cleveland per se, but did love living in Cleveland nonetheless. Tell me about that. It's kind of an obscure place in the Midwest. People are certainly an interesting breed there versus maybe the rest of the country. What was that like for you? For me, it was like, it really brought out so much of my deepest curiosity. As someone who sort of considers himself like kind of a flaneur and a wanderer and a curious person generally and a very just sort of observant person generally, you know, if you told me as a kid you were going to grow up to live in Cleveland one day, you may as well have told me you were going to grow up and live on the moon. Even though as an adult I traveled and been to the US and so forth, Nothing is like immersing yourself in a new culture and a new setting that you're living in. And yeah, to your point, it's a, it's a sort of small blue collar place in the Midwest. My accent always stuck out like crazy. They don't get too many Kiwis in that part of the world. It's a very sort of just gritty, industrial, you know, heavily working class, you know, Rust Belt kind of town. People are unbelievably friendly and humble and very family oriented and it's a lot more i mean like the us is in general it's a lot more religious than most other western countries and cleveland was an especially religious city compared to what i was used to new zealand's a very very secular society and so it was like noticeably more religious but yeah it was a, it was a trip man i mean i lived in a part of town which was overwhelmingly majority african-american 
And so for me, that was, that added an additional layer to the novelty of the cultural experience that I was having living in a place like Cleveland. I come from a very ethnically and racially diverse country, but obviously we don't have a lot of people of, of African ancestry, much less African-American ancestry. So that was a really beautiful experience and it's so different to New Zealand. Auckland, New Zealand is a very, it's a very modern and everything city, but it's a very pretty city. It's a very green city. It's got a beautiful blue harbor. You know, Cleveland is very gritty and industrial and many of the hallmarks of a classic Rust Belt city. Industries that are no longer there, but have left their vestiges and so forth. And old construction plants that kind of dot the landscape. Just in optics alone, very different to New Zealand. So I would imagine having this extreme contrast in your life has probably benefited you in your occupation of dealing with all kinds of different people, being in different environments, and exposing yourself in different ways to human culture. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Prior to getting into the path that I'm in now, and before that, getting you know getting my PhD in, in the U.S., I worked in the music industry for ten or eleven years, and I mean that experience more than anything has given me my school of hard knock schooling on exposure to differences in humanity and differences in individual experience and perspective and insight and the way people live their lives and so forth. I mean, there's no substitute for travel, obviously. And the great thing about working in the music industry is when I wasn't traveling, I had people from all over the world coming to me. So I was constantly in this steady exposure to people from all different walks of life. And when you meet people from different walks of life, you're exposed to the constellation of difference in human minds. And that's ultimately what fascinates me in my work now. Just the sheer multiplicity and diversity of mindsets that we have in the world. The music industry is a really crazy industry to work in, in terms of the characters you meet and some of the behavioral excesses that you see. Coming to academia after working in the music industry for 10 years, I mean, I knew there was going to be a sort of fairly precipitous drop off in the quality of my social life, for example. It was such a contrast in terms of kind of the straightforwardness of people compared to those that I had been working with in the music industry. Creative kind of out there people, lateral thinkers, non-conformists and rebels and mavericks by their very nature. Not to say there's no straight arrows and straight eggs in the music industry, there absolutely is, but the preponderance of people that you meet that are a little bit offbeat, that, that definitely gave me, again, some kind of like rough and ready training when it came to preparing me for the work that I'm in now, which is in human development and, and coaching. What was your family life like that kind of propelled you into these two completely different fields that you've chosen? I grew up and I think it was in the slightly lower end of the lower middle class by New Zealand standards. And I think we maybe aspirationally moved up that social hierarchy at some point for whatever that's worth. 
but yeah, very conventional, middle class, suburban upbringing. I mean, Auckland's a very American style city in so much as it's got a large downtown, large busy commercial core and then suburbs that go forever. So I was 20 kilometers from downtown Auckland, just growing up in the sticky burbs, you know, went to a very burb high school. Parents stayed together, which was starting to become more and more uncommon among people that I grew up with. I was born in 81, so by the time I was in high school in the mid 90s, or my friends' families had parents that were getting divorced, whereas mine didn't. Not that there's anything especially noteworthy or notable about that, but um, just to sort of set the scene for the vanilla ordinariness of suburbia as much as I loved it. The thing about New Zealand is it's a, it's a beautiful country. We Kiwis don't appreciate how spoiled we were. New Zealand's a great country to grow up in. It's a great country to retire in. The years in between can be lean for a lot of people because it's an isolated country at the bottom of the world. And so economic opportunity is not always massive. A lot of Kiwis fly to greener pastures abroad. You know, there's a lot of New Zealanders living in Australia and the UK and so forth because there's greater economic opportunities there. But as far as a place to grow up in, in terms of unspoiled natural beauty, a very, very good education system, a very, very safe country, a very, very functional little tugboat that could democracy at the bottom of the world just kind of doing its thing. I had absolutely no complaints about growing up in New Zealand. In terms of like how my upbringing shaped me, I'm not so sure that I can draw a straight line between my upbringing in New Zealand and where I find myself now. I kind of had a fairly wavering path. I went to a pretty standard high school, I mean an all boys school, which is single sex schools are a little more common in New Zealand, I think still. High school was kind of much to do about nothing for me. Started college, university after that and kind of like labored my way through a BA, double majored in management and employment relations. Was never particularly engaged with study. Always a smart kid and always someone who, given the right application, could have been a superstar at college. But just lazy in my early 20s and just didn't give a shit, frankly. Thereafter, I joined the corporate workforce where I was in a fairly high position in a fairly well salary job for my youthful age and the company that I was working for, you know, were definitely positioning me for higher things. You know, they sort of figured I was a new star performer to be or whatever. But it was a stationary company, like New Zealand's largest stationary chain. And I just sort of came to this realization that I just can't be selling stationary. No matter the money at this time in my life, I, mean, I had more money than I could spend at that age on anything meaningful. I just couldn't do the corporate world. And in general, I mean, I say this now, 20 odd years removed from the corporate world, and that takes a bravery I just don't have. The idea of me wearing a suit every day and taking it from that guy never appealed to me. And that's why I got into the music industry. I was New Zealand's promoter for a certain number of different genres and subgenres of music, which was enough of a niche for me over 10 years to sustain that business model in New Zealand when it had not been sustainable before. I was the first person to bring over quite a number of bands that it had been a lot more difficult to tour to New Zealand to in times past just because it's isolated it's a country that bands don't make much money touring because it's isolated and it costs more to get there live music events in new zealand is very very costly 
and I had managed for a while to find an economic model that worked and made sense and uh, I was able to do that for 10 years. So I was very wedded to New Zealand during that time and proud of the fact that I was doing something regularly in my country which had only been done intermittently before I came along. How did that door open going from the corporate world working in stationery to heading into the music business? I had been at an amateur level for many years just running local shows. Thursday night gigs where you're lucky if 30 people show up paying five bucks or whatever and you know you have to offer to pay the band and beer and pay the sound guy half price. It's one of those nights. Anyone who's ever promoted a gig before will empathize with what I'm talking about. And so in about 2006 or so, I was put in contact with the guy who is now not only the guy who's basically running my what would be my sister company in Australia, the guy doing the same genres of music and, and promoting music, the same basic model that, that I was, that version of me in Australia, he would actually turn out to be my business partner in the work that I'm doing now as well. So we've remained firm friends and firm colleagues. Basically, it was me doing it totally amateur and having this corporate day job to having this chance meeting with who would go on to become one of my dearest friends and one of my closest work colleagues. And him basically saying, hey, do you want to go pro and do this for real? And I said, yes, I basically took the chance quit my corporate job and charged off on my own with a little bit of savings and a little bit of investment and started doing bands for a living for 10 years. And then everything shifted for you. You obviously ran a course, you achieved success in that industry. Why did you decide at some point to follow a different path. A couple of reasons that are good and bad, you know, inspirational and not so great. The not so great side of it is the business was starting to tank. New Zealand got a delayed reaction to the 2008 global economic crisis in about 2009-2010. So people just had less discretionary income to spend on things like concert tickets and stuff like that. We also had a spate of successive bands cancelling for various reasons, which a lot of it is sunk cost. A lot of the time when you're promoting bands, there's just irrecoverable costs when it comes to bands pulling out of gigs. Even if you rebook them and you bring them back later, you still ultimately have to eat a little bit of that hit. And we just had several in quick succession, which basically just screwed the company. We tried to rescue ourselves and we tried to keep putting on shows to dig ourselves out of this quagmire, but we just found ourselves in a free fall descent. We had to say enough is enough. We can't put ourselves in a position to be debt laden and so forth. So we went into administration and basically wound the company down. At about that time as well, I sort of realized that my interest in the music industry itself had waned, that me doing event management and promoting shows was just becoming very rote. I was doing the same process every show and I wasn't engaging with the bands as a promoter should have. I wasn't engaging with their crew. It was like I was in a much less interesting industry. It was a turning point for me actually where there was a very successful show I had run. It was like 1,200 people or something like that. Venue was packed, people having the time of their lives. And I just remember towards the end of the head standing there on the mezzanine, having a beer and looking down and saying, Everyone here in this room is having a better time here than me tonight. I guarantee it. So in the background, while I was starting to come to this point, 
I had completed my master's degree. I was originally actually going to do a straight MBA, but the professors at the school that I did my, what ended up being a master's of commerce at, thought I had a better skill set to do a thesis-based master's rather than a professional degree like an MBA. So I sort of took them at their word, ended up doing a thesis-based master's, which puts you more on the path to taking the next step, which is to get a PhD. So when I had ultimately decided that my time in the music industry had to be well to a close, I now had my master's behind me and I now had an alternative viable path forward. So I basically just studied my ass off for the next couple of years. I spent six months living in Canada and Montreal, working as a researcher at McGill University, just so I had some more meat on the bones of my CV so that I looked like a better applicant for grad school. Got into grad school, and once I had been accepted at Case, I was in the United States four months later. And that, that set me on the path to getting my PhD and then moving into coaching and behavioral science, which is the space I'm in now. It's an interesting time for you to be in the vocation that you're in. People are disconnected all over the world in many ways. And you being here in Saigon is even more fascinating to me because even the subject of mental illness is almost nil here. People are not aware. The plus side is most everybody here I've ever met seems to be genuinely in a good place. They are not necessarily acknowledging any of the afflictions that they incur daily in life, but because of the fundamental community-based, family-based social situation that is Vietnam, I live above a sushi bar and I go downstairs and I ask the owners, how are you feeling today? And they say every time, I'm great every day, which is an incredible outlook. And somehow this whole different approach to life here which is certainly more calm. There's no violence here. There doesn't seem to be much of a level of anxiety here. People work hard. Families live together for almost their entire lives. And that's why I came here. I came here for peace and tranquility. And I find that that absolutely exists here and it's authentic. So I would imagine a lot of your clientele is not even here. What would you say the percentage of your patients, as it were, are local versus international. The number of local clients I'm now working with has actually gone up dramatically in the last couple of months, which is probably testament to the effects of the lockdown that we're experiencing here in Saigon and the, the ongoing, seemingly perpetual nature of it. Primarily, it's still overseas-based clients. The funny thing is, I mean, like for me personally, I mean, just to your point about like coming somewhere calm and more benign in many ways, my girlfriend's American. Neither of us could conceive of living in the U.S. during the pandemic. We were so thankful that we were living here in Vietnam because many of my clients last year were going loopy during lockdown in the United States. And the effects of it are real. I teach at University of Economics here in Ho Chi Minh City and my students to a T have brought up the fact that they consider the lack of focus on mental health and things like the workplace in Saigon to be one of the defining issues of their generation. That they are going to be the generation that's going to have to turn it around and that COVID has exacerbated that and they can just see it all around them. The Vietnamese are a very resilient people in terms of how they can use social cohesion and 
the happiness that comes through interpersonal bonding and how you can leverage that for improved mental health. I think they've done a wonderful job of that throughout the pandemic, but even that approach has limits. And it has limits certainly in a situation where we've all been shut inside for low there's many weeks now. And from the sounds of things, there's no end in sight to that either. As a coach, as someone who works in human development, people are in need of professional service that helps them realign and recalibrate themselves and their minds. And people are taking this opportunity more and more to pursue something like coaching. So for me, my clientele has just been growing and growing since I launched the company earlier this year. So as crisis is the great revealer, and we're all under the umbrella of this crisis, and nobody can possibly prepare for such a catastrophic event, I'm going to guess that most of your clients here are probably under 50 years old. Yeah, I mean, that, that's all my clients anyway. The types of clients that I get who come into sessions with a very firm series of objectives for personal growth and development and mitigating the effects of mental illness and attenuating any possible issues with their mental health tend to be younger. They tend to be 40 and younger, I would say. I was born in 81, so I'm an elderly millennial. My generation and younger are like the first generations that kind of grew up really getting acclimated to the realities of mental health in the workplace especially. There's a lot of water still to come under the bridge as far as like closing the gaps and people's understanding of mental health in the workplace, which is where I specialize in. But younger people, people that have been brought up around my generation or younger, they are people who recognize that their personal health is inseparable from their professional development. And that includes their mental health. It includes their physical, spiritual and emotional health as well. They're all pieces of a great complex interlocking machine. I think for a lot of older generations, there's still a curiosity element to the idea that mental health could have such an effect on people's performance in the workplace. For older generations, there's still, I think, kind of this faulty mindset of you kind of leave home brain at home and take work brain to work with you. And these are things that you park at the door when you walk out the door in the morning and you don't drag them with you into the workplace. And for reasons that might seem obvious to us talking now, but we're not always obvious to people from older generations, we just know that human psychology does not work that way. Not taking care of your mental health outside of work, you are gonna pay the price, not only for your mental health, but for your professional performance and your associated ability to contribute to productivity and profitability for your organization. Nothing in our education, unless we are intentionally looking for that information, prepares us for life at all. Nothing. We get zero preparation for being a human being. We're not taught anything about ourselves. We don't understand anything about ourselves. We're forced to learn on the fly and not get that education that could eliminate a lot of our suffering through having that knowledge and being able to look back at ourselves and have a better understanding of what's happening to us. And I'm sure that this particular emergency has created the necessity for people without them even knowing it to do some exploration. They've been stuck at home by themselves. They've been stuck with their families. They've been stuck. Some have taken this opportunity to reflect, to try new behavior patterns, 
to do some discovery around how to develop themselves. But at the same time, we tend to be a species that reverts back. Even though we get an eye-opening opportunity to take a different look at ourselves and change our perspective, we typically get lazy with that information and back to the caveman default of relying on that amygdala, fight, flight, or freeze, and not really think critically, which I think is the downfall of humanity. As a coach, it kind of behooves me to be a relatively positive person with an optimistic outlook that believes in human potential. As a scientist, I was aghast at how stupid people have been over the last year. I think it's been a fascinating scientific experiment in human frailty, human ignorance, and just ill-preparedness. You could say that nothing could have prepared us for this, but when the pandemic was underway, and it wasn't just unique to the US, the US was perhaps the most colorful example of how this ran off the rails, but the fact that humanity descended into this kind of mass panic, which was driven so much by ideology and dogma, rather than just a sober, measured reflection on the science. And it was always about the football team mentality, taking sides. I was so saddened by what I saw over the last year that I just had to laugh and be like, this is this meager species that I'm a part of. This is this 300,000 year old, overfencing itself, underdeveloped ape which is not all that far removed from the primordial origins in a lot of ways. A once naked ape that's found itself in the context of a global pandemic with the associated technological and social technological complexity that accompanied the pandemic in terms of social media's role in highlighting and broadcasting the stupidity of the last year and, and everything that I observed to be stupid to the world. With all of those chips on the table, to answer your question more directly, my work has focused on getting people out of the general funk that toxifies their thinking when they are locked down for some lengthy period of time or otherwise undergoing restrictions which makes their life more cumbersome and more complicated and just more difficult than it needs to be particularly if they've got kids, trying to get them to make the most of an unfortunate situation that you can't do a goddamn thing about anyway. Live with the inevitability of the situation that you're in and to sort of gain a sense of equanimity with that inevitability. That right there is kind of a key thing. Able to remain in a state of relative equanimity given you can't largely do a damn thing about the restrictions on your situation. That's a good mindset to aspire to. Gareth, I really appreciate that you came on the show and shared your life with us. I wish you all the best, and I, I'm glad to have you in my life as a co-conspirator, if you will. It's been such a pleasure, such a fun conversation, and uh, consider me an obvious co-conspirator and ally. Yeah, man, it's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity just to, to yarn with you, man. Thanks, man. You too, Gareth.
Hey, Zozo. Hi, Dad. Did you just finish work? Yeah, a little bit ago. Tell me about that. How did that go? I mean, I'm not totally done. I'm just done with meetings for the day. I still have other stuff, but it went well. We did a campus tour. Yeah, for how many people? Two. Who's we? My coworker and I. Sometimes more people come, but usually Fridays are pretty chill, so. Okay. And who were the two people you were giving a guided tour to? New students. They were nice humans. So you had a couple of humans, and what kind of stuff did you go over? We'd go through a PowerPoint presentation, because it's all virtual. So we'll show like a map of the campus and sort of where on campus we're showing them, and then, you know, pictures of buildings, and then we'll kind of talk about what's in those buildings, why they're important, that kind of thing. And so we just go around the map of campus like that, like, oh, in this area, you have these buildings, and... That's what's interesting about them, kind of thing. How long does the presentation last? 45 minutes. Okay. It's pretty thorough. You go through the parking and the football stadium and the bookstore and all the high points of campus life on... uh, What school do you go to? Oregon State University. Oh, yeah. OSU. So are you guys preparing for live classes upon your return from break? Are you on break still? We're on summer. Yeah, it's not really break. It's just like summer. It's not a break from school? It is a break from school, but it's not like winter break and spring break are predetermined breaks. Right. We're like in the break between academic years, if that makes sense. Okay. And when do you return to classes? September 22nd. And you're going to go to classes where there are professors and other people. Is that correct at this point that is the hope yeah theoretically that is the plan so is it entirely possible based on this recent outbreak in jackson county that should that spread and start coming in your direction things could change yeah i mean we've had an uptick in cases all over oregon all over the country obviously recently with the delta variant so like Oregon just reinstated the mask mandate today, so. They're mandated for anywhere where you're outside of your home? No, I believe it's all indoor buildings. You know, public spaces, restaurants, stores, or at least for school it is, from what I know. Okay. How do you wear a mask in a restaurant while you're eating? You don't. I mean, I don't know if they've taken away indoor dining again, or... If it's like the thing where you wear it unless you're eating. Can you get your own robot so you can get your food delivered to you? No. My guess would be it's probably rather expensive. They're hefty pieces of technology. Maybe you could have your own outside of campus robot food delivery service and you could become a mega zillionaire, kind of like the Tesla guy. What's that guy's name? You mean Elon Musk? That guy, Elon Musk, yes. Elana Musk. No thanks. No way do I want to be the female version of Elon Musk. Thanks. Do you know about his condition? Do you mean that he has autism, probably? Yeah. Do you know about that? I do, yeah. It answers a lot of questions for me on his unusual behavior and his stratospheric intelligence and all his stratospheric notoriety. Is stratospheric a word? Yeah. Okay. It refers to... A level of the atmosphere. So am I using it in proper context? Yeah. Okay. 
he goes into space, so it's even more relative. Yeah. Richard Branson, he just went to space in his Virgin Atlantic space vehicle. Yeah, so did Jeff Bezos. Oh, he went too? Yeah, it was one of those things that rich white men do, where they're like in a competition about it. They both want to go to space and they're trying to one-up each other and it's like, really? This is pretty transparent for what it is, you know? They're going to space in like giant phallic machines, like really? Just a dick measuring contest. In my opinion, and I think it's bullshit. Rich people. Oh, that's uh, valid, mm. honest, and uh, <laughs> a little shocking of an opinion from my 20-year-old daughter. <laughs> well, they are very phallic-looking. If you look at the Washington Monument, giant penis, the Vatican, giant penis. Yeah. We're both reaching milestone birthdays this year, by the way. Yep. 21 and 60. What the... How can I be 60? How could you be 21? You don't have classes yet lined up for the fall semester, do you? Yeah, we choose our fall classes the spring before they happen. Oh, so what do you have? What do you got coming? What's going on with those? I'm taking brain and behavior, which is psychology and neuroscience. That sounds fun. Mm -hmm. It should be interesting. And then I'm taking ethics in computer science. Huh. Because I need a CS credit and I didn't want to take computer science. Okay. It's 2.12 in the morning here, which means it's 12.12 p.m. lunchtime-ish in Corvallis, Oregon. Is it nice and sunny and lovely today? I would not use the word lovely. It's actually not too bad today. Yesterday was crazy hot. We're in a heat wave. Isn't most of North America in a heat wave right now? Yep. What is the world going to need to see, scientifically speaking? What kind of proof do idiots need to see that there is definitely climate change occurring before our eyes and quickly? It's not like a gradual thing that's happening. It's happening now. Yeah, especially in the past year or so. The flooding here and in Europe in the winter when Texas had winter storms and lost power. The fires all across the country right now. The heat waves and the hurricanes, it's obvious. Here in Vietnam, if you ask somebody to go out to dinner, I think male or female, doesn't matter, you pay. It's a given. Mm-hmm. There's a Vietnamese name for it. And my friend, Chris Ketchpole, he's the executive creative director at DDB Needham Worldwide. He had a birthday party and he invited all of his staff mm -hmm. without knowing this Vietnamese rule. And then he had to pay for it all. He didn't realize what he committed to. And I told him, I went through the same thing, sort of. My friend, June, I asked her if she'd like to go get something to eat. And we went to this really amazing Spanish restaurant here. It was called Tomatito. It was a tapas place and the food was outstanding. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't expecting to drink any wine or alcohol. And I didn't really look at the prices. I said, ah, just order. I think I had like a million VND on me, which is like $40, which is a lot for food. Mm -hmm. You know, the average meal here is less than 100,000 VND. Mm -hmm. So I figured I'm packing the cash. Order what you want. Go ahead. Get the lobster. They didn't have any lobster, I don't think. Anyway, she goes, do you want to have some wine? I thought, sure, why not? How much could wine be? So we had two glasses of wine apiece and had a bunch of tapas. 
Of all the alcohols, wine? I feel like that's expensive. I still felt like I was in the financial wheelhouse to be able to cover a bill with a million VND on me. Fair enough. And we got the bill, and the bill was 1.7 million VND. And of course, I was expected to pay, but I didn't want to let on. She goes, okay, I'm going to go. I got to go do something. I go, you know what? Go ahead. I'm going to hang back here for a minute. And I had to get on the phone and call Harry and go, dude, you need to come down here and bring me a million VND. He had to get in a taxi at like nine o'clock at night. And it was very kind of him. And it was a little embarrassing for me. And I had to tell them at the restaurant, yeah, I didn't, I didn't come with enough money. And at that time, either I didn't have my debit card on me or it wasn't working or some buffoonery. I don't know. Anyway, I finally told her two weeks later, like, oh, you remember when we went out to eat? Yeah, I didn't have enough money. And it was because of that rule. Anyway, she bought me a, a 40,000 VND bowl of pho for that 40,000 VND, which is like $1.60. <laughs> but... Equally as delicious, I must say. You sent me that news link for uh, for the, the COVID surge in Jackson County? Yep. I sent that to your mother. <laughs> I think I did too. <laughs> I, I also let her know that I had just received the vaccination myself. No pressure, I'm just sharing. She won't bow to pressure. I've done every possible thing that I can to make her do it, and she hasn't. I'm impressed by that. Is she not doing it out of spite? This seems like spite now. No. She claims it's some sort of intuitive feeling she has that she shouldn't get it. Well, maybe she's right. Yeah, and I I told her that. I was like, well, that's fair, but could it also just be sort of internalized fear that you're interpreting as an intuitive feeling? because she's put so much fear into it. I explained to your mother that the chance of her dying is about as good as getting hit by lightning, not once, not twice, but three times, which is nearly impossible. I did the best I can. After I got stuck, and I don't want to mention any names, Rich Reese, but after I got (laughs) stuck and went through my horrible 24 hours, I just wanted to let her know that I did it, even though I told her that I was not even on the fence. If I didn't have to get the shot here, I wouldn't have got the shot. But I don't think I had any choice as a uh, foreigner here. And uh, I think it was actually really important that I show solidarity while I'm here being hosted in a country that can choose to flick me off like a flea. Mm -hmm. And I did it for those reasons. I got the shot knowing if I do die, it's probably better to die from the shot than not get the shot and deal with people. I don't want to mention any names, Rich Reese, (laughs) giving me any trouble for getting or not getting the vaccine. Yeah, it's important for public health. Well, it seems to be. And because Vietnam has been really lucky up until a couple of months ago, where even the first surge of the pandemic was pretty mild and they handled it really well. The second surge has been off the rails and uh, we've been in lockdown for a couple of months now. This is apparently our fourth wave in the United States, which is fun. Yeah. How many people do you know personally who've been affected by it? Like gotten COVID? Yeah. At least three, maybe five, possibly more. I know three people who definitely had it 
I know two more who they think had it, and I know other people who either potentially think they've had it or just might have had it, but don't know for sure because you need to get the antibody test to see if you had it. People had it before we really knew that much about it. February and March of 2020, I think it's too late to get the antibody test, so they might have had it and just not known about it. Is there anything else in the news besides COVID right now? There's the fires, the heat wave, the recent IPCC climate report. What did that say? It was very like doomsday. (laughs) There was a lot in it. It's a very long report, but it basically said that there's a section for policymakers that talked about the immediate need to like decrease the use of carbon emitting. I don't know all the right terminology, but that kind of thing. And also brought up how concerning methane is as a pollutant because of how quickly it heats up. Carbon dioxide is more like long term and it stays in the atmosphere for a long time fucking things up, but it talked about the chances of different, you know, events happening. So like right now, I think we've hit one degree of warming, which isn't good. Ideally, we don't want to hit 1.5, but it looks like we're going to hit 1.5 degrees. They basically said it's impossible not to hit 1.5 degrees of warming at our current trajectory. So now really it's about avoiding hitting 2 and 3 degrees because those dramatically and exponentially increase the chances of fires and other really hazardous natural events like hurricanes and floods and all those crazy horrible things that happen. So And like just higher temperatures like heat waves and stuff. It's looking like a lot of island nations are going to get swallowed by the ocean in the next 50 to 100 years, which really sucks. And the ocean's acidifying, which isn't good at all. Lots of terrible things happening that we're doing, and we won't stop because companies are greedy bastards. It's the movie WALL-E, right? Isn't that pretty much us? Yeah, which is really sad. And that's why the, like, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, all those billionaires make me so angry, because they're so fucking rich. Like, they are so, so, so rich. And they could help, and they do donate a little bit to charity, but to them, maybe it's millions. But to them, that's like pennies, because they make that in a day. So I I just think they're selfish, terrible people. Because, like, you could help the planet, but you choose not to because you love your money and spaceships and whatever. So Good rant, and justifiable (laughs) rant, because we need solutions. And the solutions cost money, and those people have the ability to make things happen much quicker if there's a high concentration of effort and and, uh, financial support put into some projects. It could buy us at least some more time and uh, increase the quality of life for a lot of people all at one time. Bill Gates was being interviewed on something the other day. I was going through YouTube and uh, it was a very short interview and he was pretty much talking about what you're talking about, that certain things need to be happening now. And in doing so, it creates jobs and we can reappropriate people from outdated technology that is harmful oil and gas and convert people over there's all kinds of opportunity but we refuse to seize the day kind of blows me away that we're so unwilling and so short-sighted and so fucking stupid that we won't just pull the trigger and start doing the right thing so we can at least extend the life of our children and grandchildren to be able to have grandchildren because at this rate yeah it's so incredibly selfish it's horrifying 
You cannot motivate people based on fear. You have to do it out of love and encouragement and support. And a lot of people are struggling and it's hard to actually do the right thing when you struggle because you can only focus on survival. Exactly. You can't save the world, you can save yourself. And you can do the best you can for yourself. And hopefully through your example, you encourage others to follow suit if they see that you're a happy person who's well-adjusted and making good decisions. Perhaps they too will embark down that path. But your generation is certainly the most conscious yet, I think. Would you not agree? I would definitely agree with that. It's just a bummer because, like, while we're maybe the most conscious, we also, like, don't have any of the power. And so, like, all these, you know, entrenched people, they're the ones who, you know, did this to the planet or were at least, like, complicit in it. And they're the people who have the power to make the changes, but they won't, which is a bummer. The average age of Congress is, like, 50 or 60 at least. And, like, the average age of an American is, like, 30, 35. So it's kind of absurd. Congress is supposed to represent the population and they don't. That's true. What time is it there? 1.09? Yes. What are you eating? Chocolate? No protein bar. That's covered in chocolate. You're eating chocolate then. You said no. Because it's not just chocolate. I'm not eating a chocolate bar. I understand. I'm eating a protein bar with chocolate in it. Okay. Do you have any parting words for your fellow students or any of your peers, any people might be listening of your age group now that your mouth is full of chocolate covered protein bar please stand by everybody while my daughter consumes food on the show (laughs) ultimately don't be an asshole get vaccinated that's my opinion dad okay so just don't be an asshole and get vaccinated and everything will be all right (laughs) yeah maybe okay How you doing on the uh, Office Ladies podcast? Do you have anything waiting for you in the wings or have you used up your allotment? I think I have one in the wings. I haven't listened to Moroccan Christmas yet, so. Oh. I'm saving that one. And what was the one you listened to before that? I think it's the surplus. Angela's birthday. That was cute. She said fuck like five times in that show. (laughs) I like it. That might have been the most swearing in any Office Ladies podcast in the history of the podcast. It's very funny. Okay, it's 3.30 in the morning, Zozo. I love you. It was fun to catch up. Thank you for always being super honest on the show and being light and breezy and very easy and all that. Love you too. Okay, bye. Bye. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Gareth for coming on and talking about his unusual road to getting his PhD. And I want to thank him for all the work that he's doing to help people manage themselves, their emotions, and their experience through some extremely difficult and challenging times. You know, he spoke a lot more about human behavior and whatnot, but uh, I really wanted to focus on his journey And the reason, too, that I wanted to exclude a lot of the scientific exploration that he shared with me about why we are where we are is because 
I want you folks to go get this book, Sapiens. I'm hoping that I can convince Yuval Noah Harari to be my guest on my 100th show, which is coming up. The book is amazing. And on the back, it says, we have the dubious distinction of being the deadliest species in the annals of biology. And that is a fact. I want to thank Zoe for letting it out. And, uh, oh, I love that girl. She's so cool. She's taking these psychology courses because she wants to help inform children on how they can be more impactful and knowledgeable about their responsibility to the planet and to themselves and to everybody else. So kudos to her on that goal. It was great to have Rich on the show. I'm so happy that he's found a better place and that he is finding fun things to do to entertain himself in his semi-retirement. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Zoe. And thanks, Gareth. Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. You can listen to the show on CastBox, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening to the show. There is no end anyway. Is there? Take care. Bye-bye. The song at the beginning of each show is called Nico Beat by Robbie Lindauer. The song at the end of each show is by Lucky Doug Fergus. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. Yes. I am Citizen 44.
a trip so far from here I got two tickets in my pocket now baby we're gonna disappear we waited too long waited so long waited so long waited so long I've got RobbieLindauer.com